Chapters twenty five and twenty six of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty five. While this sufficiently intimate colloquy, prolonged for some time after we ceased to follow it, went forward, Madame Merle and her companion, breaking a silence of some duration, had begun to exchange remarks. They were sitting in an attitude of unexpressed expectancy, an attitude especially marked on the part of the Countess Gemini, who, being of a more nervous temperament than her friend, practised with less success the art of disguising impatience. What these ladies were waiting for would not have been apparent, and was perhaps not very definite to their own minds. Madame Merle waited for Osmond to release their young friend from her tete-a-tete, and the Countess waited because Madame Merle did. The Countess, moreover, by waiting, found the time ripe for one of her pretty perversities. She might have desired for some minutes to place it. Her brother wandered with Isabel to the end of the garden, to which point her eyes followed them. "'My dear,' she then observed to her companion, "'you'll excuse me if I don't congratulate you.' "'Very willingly, for I don't at the least know why you should.' "'Haven't you a little plan that you think rather well of?' and the countess nodded at the sequestered couple. Madame Merle's eyes took the same direction, then she looked serenely at her neighbour. "'You know I never understand you very well,' she smiled. "'No one can understand better than you when you wish. I see that just now you don't wish.' "'You say things to me that no one else does,' said Madame Merle gravely, yet without bitterness. "'You mean things you don't like?' Doesn't Osmond sometimes say such things? What your brother says has a point. Yes, a poisoned one sometimes. If you mean that I'm not so clever as he, you mustn't think I shall suffer from your sense of our difference. But it will be much better that you should understand me. Why so? asked Madame Merle. To what will it conduce? If I don't approve of your plan, you ought to know it in order to appreciate the danger of my interfering with it. Madame Mère looked as if she were ready to admit that there might be something in this, but in a moment she said quietly, "'You think me more calculating than I am.' "'It's not your calculating, I think, Ilov. It's your calculating wrong. You've done so in this case.' "'You must have made extensive calculations yourself to discover that.' "'No, I've not had time. I've seen the girl but this once,' said the Countess and the conviction has suddenly come to me. I like her very much. So do I, Madame Merle mentioned. You've a strange way of showing it. Surely I've given her the advantage of making your acquaintance. That indeed, piped the Countess, is perhaps the best thing that could happen to her. Madame Merle said nothing for some time. The Countess's manner was odious, was really low, but it was an old story and with her eyes upon the violet slope of Monte Morello, she gave herself up to reflection. "'My dear lady,' she finally resumed, "'I advise you not to agitate yourself. The matter you allude to concerns three persons much stronger of purpose than yourself.' Three persons? You and Osmond, of course. But is Miss Archer also very strong of purpose?' "'Quite as much so as we.' "'Ah, then,' said the Countess radiantly, 
if i convince her it's her interest to resist you she'll do so successfully resist us why do you express yourself so coarsely she's not exposed to compulsion or deception i'm not sure of that you're capable of anything you and osmond i don't mean osmond by himself and i don't mean you by yourself but together you're dangerous like some chemical combination you had better leave us alone then smiled madame merle i don't mean to touch you but i shall talk to that girl my poor amy madame merle murmured i don't see what has got into your head i take an interest in her that's what has got into my head i like her madame merle hesitated a moment i don't think she likes you the countess's bright little eyes expanded and her face was set in a grimace ah you are dangerous even by yourself if you want to like her you don't abuse your brother to her said madame merle i don't suppose you pretend she has fallen in love with him in two interviews madame merle looked a moment at isabel and at the master of the house he was leaning against the parapet facing her his arms folded and she at present was evidently not lost in the mere impersonal view persistently as she gazed at it as madame merle watched her she lowered her eyes she was listening possibly with a certain embarrassment while she pressed the point of her parasol into the path madame merle rose from her chair yes i think so she pronounced the shabby footboy summoned by pansy he might tarnished as delivery and quaint as to type have issued from some stray sketch of old-time manners been put in by the brush of a longi or a goya had come out with a small table and placed it on the grass and then had gone back and fetched the tea-tray after which he had again disappeared to return with a couple of chairs pansy had watched these proceedings with the deepest interest standing with her small hands folded together upon the front of her scanty frock but she had not presumed to offer assistance when the tea-table had been arranged however she gently approached her aunt do you think papa would object to my making the tea the countess looked at her with a deliberately critical gaze and without answering her question my poor niece she said is that your best frock ah no pansy answered it's just a little toilette for common occasions do you call it a common occasion when i come to see you to say nothing of madame merle and the pretty lady yonder pansy reflected a moment turning gravely from one of the persons mentioned to the other then her face broke into its perfect smile i have a pretty dress but even that one's very simple why should i expose it beside your beautiful things because it's the prettiest you have for me you must always wear the prettiest please put it on the next time it seems to me they don't dress you so well as they might the child sparingly stroked down her antiquated skirt it's a good little dress to make tea don't you think don't you believe papa would allow me impossible for me to say my child said the countess for me your father's ideas are unfathomable madame merle understands them better ask her madame merle smiled with her usual grace it's a weighty question let me think 
It seems to me it would please your father to see a careful little daughter making his tea. It's the proper duty of the daughter of the house, when she grows up. So it seems to me, Madame Merle, Pansy cried. You shall see how well I'll make it. A spoonful for each. And she began to busy herself at the table. Two spoonfuls for me, said the Countess, who, with Madame Merle, remained for some moments watching her. Listen to me, Pansy, the Countess resumed at last. I should like to know what you think of your visitor. Ah, she's not mine, she's papa's, Pansy objected. Miss Archer came to see you as well, said Madame Merle. I'm very happy to hear that. She has been very polite to me. Do you like her, then? the Countess asked. She's charming, charming, Pansy repeated, in her neat little conversational tone. She pleases me thoroughly. And how do you think she pleases your father? Oh, really, Countess, murmured Madame Merle dissuasively. Go and call them to tea, she went on to the child. You'll see if they don't like it, Pansy declared, and departed to summon the others, who had still lingered at the end of the terrace. If Miss Arch is to become her mother, it's surely interesting to know if the child likes her, said the Countess. If your brother marries again, it won't be for Pansy's sake, Madame Merle replied. She'll soon be sixteen, and after that she'll begin to need a husband rather than a stepmother. And will you provide the husband as well? I shall certainly take an interest in her marrying, fortunately. I imagine you'll do the same. Indeed I shan't, cried the Countess. Why should I, of all women, set such a price on a husband? You didn't marry fortunately. That's what I'm speaking of. When I say a husband, I mean a good one. There are no good ones. Osmond won't be a good one. Madame Merle closed her eyes a moment. You're irritated just now. I don't know why, she presently said. I don't think you'll really object either to your brothers or to your nieces marrying when the time comes for them to do so. And, as regards Pansy, I'm confident that we shall some day have the pleasure of looking for a husband for her together. Your large acquaintance will be a great help. Yes, I'm irritated, the Countess answered. You often irritate me. Your own coolness is fabulous. You're a strange woman. It's much better that we should always act together, Madame Merle went on. Do you mean that as a threat? asked the Countess, rising. Madame Merle shook her head as for quiet amusement. No, indeed, you've not my coolness. Isabel and Mr. Osmond were now slowly coming toward them, and Isabel had taken Pansy by the hand. Do you pretend to believe he'd make her happy? the Countess demanded. If he should marry Miss Archer, I suppose he'd behave like a gentleman. The Countess jerked herself into a succession of attitudes. Do you mean as most gentlemen behave? That would be much to be thankful for. Of course Osmond's a gentleman. His own sister needn't be reminded of that. But does he think he can marry any girl he happens to pick out? Osmond's a gentleman, of course. But I must say I've never, no, no, never, seen any one of Osmond's pretensions. What they're all founded on is more than I can say. I'm his own sister. I might be supposed to know. Who is he, if you please? What has he ever done? 
if there had been anything particularly grand in his origin, if he were made of some superior clay, I presume I should have got some inkling of it. If there had been any great honours or splendours in the family, I should certainly have made the most of them. They would have been quite in my line. But there's nothing, nothing, nothing. One's parents were charming people, of course, but so were yours, no doubt. Everyone's a charming person nowadays. Even I'm a charming person. Don't laugh. It has literally been said. As for Osmond, he has always appeared to believe that he's descended from the gods. You may say what you please, said Madame Merle, who had listened to this quick outbreak none the less attentively, we may believe, because her eye wandered away from the speaker, and her hands busied themselves with adjusting the knots of ribbon on her dress. You Osmonds are a fine race. Your blood must flow from some very pure source. Your brother, like an intelligent man, has had the conviction of it if he has not had the proofs. You're modest about it, but you yourself are extremely distinguished. What do you say about your niece? The child's a little princess. Nevertheless, Madame Merle added, it won't be an easy matter for Osmond to marry Miss Archer. Yet he can try. I hope she'll refuse him. It will take him down a little. We mustn't forget that he is one of the cleverest of men. I've heard you say that before, but I haven't yet discovered what he has done. What has he done? He has done nothing that has had to be undone, and he has known how to wait. To wait for Miss Archer's money? How much of it is there? That's not what I mean, said Madame Merle. Miss Archer has seventy thousand pounds. Well, it's a pity she's so charming, the Countess declared. To be sacrificed, any girl would do. She needn't be superior. If she weren't superior, your brother would never look at her. He must have the best. Yes, returned the Countess, as they went forward a little to meet the others. He's very hard to satisfy. That makes me tremble for her happiness. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 Gilbert Osmond came to see Isabel again. That is, he came to Palazzo Crescentini. He had other friends there as well, and to Mrs. Touchett and Madame Merle he was always impartially civil. But the former of these ladies noted the fact that in the course of a fortnight he called five times, and compared it with another fact that she found no difficulty in remembering. Two visits a year had hitherto constituted his regular tribute to Mrs. Touchett's worth, and she had never observed him select for such visits those moments of almost periodical recurrence when Madame Merle was under her roof. It was not for Madame Merle that he came. These two were old friends, and he never put himself out for her. He was not fond of Ralph. Ralph had told her so and it was not supposable that Mr. Osmond had suddenly taken a fancy to her son. Ralph was imperturbable. Ralph had a kind of loose-fitting urbanity that wrapped him about like an ill-made overcoat, but of which he never divested himself. He thought Mr. Osmond very good company, and was willing at any time to look at him in the light of hospitality. But he didn't flatter himself that the desire to repair a past injustice was the motive of their visitors' calls. He read the situation more clearly. Isabel was the attraction, and in all conscience a sufficient one. 
Osmond was a critic, a student of the exquisite, and it was natural he should be curious of so rare an apparition. So when his mother observed to him that it was plain what Mr. Osmond was thinking of, Ralph replied that he was quite of her opinion. Mrs. Touchett had, from far back, found a place on her scant list for this gentleman, though wondering dimly by what art and what process, so negative and so wise as they were, he had everywhere effectively imposed himself. As he had never been an importunate visitor, he had had no chance to be offensive, and he was recommended to her by his appearance of being as well able to do without her as she was to do without him a quality that always oddly enough affected her as providing ground for a relation with her it gave her no satisfaction however to think that he had taken it into his head to marry her niece such an alliance on isabel's part would have an air of almost morbid perversity mrs touchett easily remembered that the girl had refused an english peer and that a young lady with whom Lord Warburton had not successfully wrestled should content herself with an obscure American dilettante, a middle-aged widower with an uncanny child and an ambiguous income, this answered to nothing in Mrs. Touchett's conception of success. She took, it will be observed, not the sentimental but the political view of matrimony, a view which has always had much to recommend it. "'I trust she won't have the folly to listen to him,' she said to her son, to which Ralph replied that Isabel's listening was one thing, and Isabel's answering quite another. He knew she had listened to several parties, as his father would have said, but had made them listen in return, and he found much entertainment in the idea that in these few months of his knowing her he should observe a fresh suitor at her gate. She had wanted to see life, and fortune was serving her to her taste. A succession of fine gentlemen going down on their knees to her would do as well as anything else. Ralph looked forward to a fourth, a fifth, a tenth besieger. He had no conviction she would stop at a third. She would keep the gate ajar and open a parley. She would certainly not allow number three to come in. He expressed this view, somewhat after this fashion, to his mother, who looked at him as if he had been dancing in a jig. He had such a fanciful, pictorial way of saying things that he might as well address her in the deaf-mute's alphabet. "'I don't think I know what you mean,' she said. "'You use too many figures of speech. I could never understand allegories. The two words in the language I most respect are yes and no. If Isabel wants to marry Mr. Osmond, she'll do so in spite of all your comparisons.' let her alone to find a fine one herself for anything she undertakes i know very little about the young man in america i don't think she spends much of her time in thinking of him and i suspect he has got tired of waiting for her there's nothing in life to prevent her marrying mr osmond if she only looks at him in a certain way that's all very well no one approves more than i of one's pleasing oneself but she takes her pleasure in such odd things She's capable of marrying Mr. Osmond for the beauty of his opinions, or for his autograph of Michelangelo. She wants to be disinterested, as if she were the only person who's in danger of not being so. Will he be so disinterested when he has the spending of her money? That was her idea before your father's death, and it has acquired new charms for her since. 
she ought to marry someone of whose disinterestedness she shall herself be sure and there would be no such proof of that as his having a fortune of his own my dear mother i'm not afraid ralph answered she's making fools of us all she'll please herself of course but she'll do so by studying human nature at close quarters and yet retaining her liberty she has started out on an exploring expedition and i don't think she'll change her course at the outset at a signal from gilbert osmond she may have slackened speed for an hour but before we know it she'll be steaming away again excuse another metaphor mrs touchett excused it perhaps but was not so much reassured as to withhold from madame merle the expression of her fears you who know everything she said you must know this whether that curious creature's really making love to my niece gilbert osmond madame merle widened her clear eyes and with a full intelligence heaven help us she exclaimed that's an idea hadn't it occurred to you you make me feel an idiot but i confess it hadn't i wonder she added if it has occurred to isabel oh i shall now ask her said mrs touchett madame merle reflected don't put it into her head the thing would be to ask mr osmond i can't do that said mrs touchett i won't have him inquire of me as he perfectly may with that air of his given isabel's situation what business it is of mine i'll ask him myself madame merle bravely declared but what business for him is it of yours it's being done whatever is just why i can afford to speak it's so much less my business than any one's else that he can put me off with anything he chooses but it will be by the way he does this that i shall know pray let me hear then said mrs touchett of the fruits of your penetration if i can't speak to him however at least i can speak to isabel her companion sounded at this the note of warning don't be too quick with her don't inflame her imagination i never did anything in my life to anyone's imagination but i'm always sure of her doing something well not of my kind no you wouldn't like this madame merle observed without the point of interrogation why in the world should i pray mr osmond has nothing the least solid to offer again madame merle was silent while her thoughtful smile drew up her mouth even more charmingly than usual toward the left corner let us distinguish gilbert osmond certainly not the first comer he's a man who in favourable conditions might very well make a great impression he has made a great impression to my knowledge more than once don't tell me about his probably quite cold-blooded love affairs they're nothing to me mrs touchett cried what you say's precisely why i wish he would cease his visits he has nothing in the world that i know of but a dozen or two of early masters and a more or less pert little daughter the early masters are now worth a good deal of money said madame merle and the daughters are very young and very innocent and very harmless person in other words she's an insipid little chit is that what you mean having no fortune she can't hope to marry as they marry here so that isabel will have to furnish her either with the maintenance or with the dowry isabel probably wouldn't object to being kind to her i think she likes the poor child 
another reason then for mr osmond stopping at home otherwise a week hence we shall have my niece arriving at the conviction that her mission in life's to prove that a stepmother may sacrifice herself and that to prove it she must first become one she would make a charming stepmother smiled madame merle but i quite agree with you that she had better not decide upon her mission too hastily changing the form of one's missions almost as difficult as changing the shape of one's nose there they are each in the middle of one's face and one's character one has to begin too far back but i'll investigate and report to you all this went on quite over isabel's head she had no suspicions that her relations with mr osmond were being discussed madame merle had said nothing to put her on her guard she alluded no more pointedly to him than to the other gentlemen of florence native and foreign who now arrived in considerable numbers to pay their respects to Miss Arch's aunt. Isabel thought him interesting. She came back to that. She liked so to think of him. She had carried away an image from her visit to his hilltop, which her subsequent knowledge of him did nothing to efface, and which put on for her a particular harmony with other supposed and divined things, histories within histories, the image of a quiet, clever, sensitive, distinguished man strolling on a moss-grown terrace above the sweet Val d'Arno, and holding by the hand a little girl whose bell-like clearness gave a new grace to childhood. The picture had no flourishes, but she liked its lowness of tone and the atmosphere of summer twilight that pervaded it. It spoke of the kind of personal issues that touched her most nearly, of the choice between objects, subjects, contacts, what might she call them, of a thin and those of a rich association, of a lonely studious life in a lovely land, of an old sorrow that sometimes ached today, of a feeling of pride that was perhaps exaggerated, but that had an element of nobleness, of a care for beauty and perfection so natural and so cultivated together, that the career appeared to stretch beneath it in the disposed vistas and with the ranges of steps and terraces and fountains of a formal Italian garden, allowing only for arid places freshened by the natural dews of a quaint, half-anxious, half-helpless fatherhood. At Palazzo Crescentini, Mr. Osmond's manner remained the same, diffident at first, oh, self-conscious beyond doubt, and full of the effort, visible only to a sympathetic eye, to overcome this disadvantage, an effort which usually resulted in a great deal of easy, lively, very positive, rather aggressive, always suggestive talk. Mr. Osmond's talk was not injured by the indication of an eagerness to shine. Isabel found no difficulty in believing that a person was sincere who had so many of the signs of strong conviction as, for instance, an explicit and graceful appreciation of anything that might be said on his own side of the question, and perhaps by Miss Archer in special. What continued to please this young woman was that while he talked so for amusement, he didn't talk, as she had heard people, for effect. He uttered his ideas as if, odd as they often appeared, he were used to them and had lived with them, old polished knobs and heads and handles of precious substance that could be fitted if necessary to new walking-sticks 
not switches plucked in destitution from the common tree and then too elegantly waved about one day he brought his small daughter with him and she rejoiced to renew acquaintance with the child who as she presented her forehead to be kissed by every member of the circle reminded her vividly of an ingenue in a french play isabel had never seen a little person of this pattern american girls were very different different too were the maidens of england pansy was so formed and finished for her tiny place in the world and yet in imagination as one could see so innocent and infantine she sat on the sofa by isabel she wore a small grenadine mantle and a pair of the useful gloves that madame merle had given her little grey gloves with a single button she was like a sheet of blank paper the ideal jeune fille of foreign fiction isabel hoped that so fair and smooth a page would be covered with an edifying text the countess jamini also came to call upon her but the countess was quite another affair she was by no means a blank sheet she had been written over in a variety of hands and mrs touchett who felt by no means honoured by her visit pronounced that a number of unmistakable blots were to be seen upon her surface the countess gave rise indeed to some discussion between the mistress of the house and the visitor from rome in which madame merle who was not such a fool as to irritate people by always agreeing with them availed herself felicitously enough of that large license of dissent which her hostess permitted as freely as she practised it mrs touchett had declared it a piece of audacity that this highly compromised character should have presented herself at such a time of day at the door of a house in which she was esteemed so little as she must long have known herself to be at palazzo crescentini isabel had been made acquainted with the estimate prevailing under that roof it represented mr osmond's sister as a lady who had so mismanaged her improprieties that they had ceased to hang together at all which was at the least what one asked of such matters and had become the mere floating fragments of a wrecked renown incommoding social circulation she had been married by her mother a more administrative person with an appreciation of foreign titles which the daughter to do her justice had probably by this time thrown off to an italian nobleman who had perhaps given her some excuse for attempting to quench the consciousness of outrage the countess however had consoled herself outrageously and the list of her excuses had now lost itself in the labyrinth of her adventures mrs touchett had never consented to receive her though the countess had made overtures of old florence was not an austere city but as mrs touchett said she had to draw the line somewhere madame merle defended the luckless lady with a great deal of zeal and wit she couldn't see why mrs touchett should make a scapegoat of a woman who had really done no harm who had only done good in the wrong way one must certainly draw the line but while one was about it one should draw it straight it was a very crooked chalk mark that would exclude the countess jamini in that case mrs touchett had better shut up her house this perhaps would be the best course so long as she remained in florence one must be fair and not make arbitrary differences the countess had doubtless been imprudent she had not been so clever as other women she was a good creature not clever at all but since when had that been a ground of exclusion from the best society 
for ever so long now one had heard nothing about her and there could be no better proof of her having renounced the error of her ways than her desire to become a member of mrs touchett's circle isabel could contribute nothing to this interesting dispute not even a patient attention she contented herself with having given a friendly welcome to the unfortunate lady who whatever her defects had at least the merit of being mr osmond's sister as she liked the brother isabel thought it proper to try and like the sister in spite of the growing complexity of things she was still capable of these primitive sequences she had not received the happiest impression of the countess on meeting her at the villa but was thankful for an opportunity to repair the accident had not mr osmond remarked that she was a respectable person to have proceeded from gilbert osmond this was a crude proposition but madame merle bestowed upon it a certain improving polish she told isabel more about the poor countess than mr osmond had done and related the history of her marriage and its consequences the count was a member of an ancient tuscan family but of such small estate that he had been glad to accept amy osmond in spite of the questionable beauty which had not yet hampered her career with the modest dowry her mother was able to offer a sum about equivalent to that which had already formed her brother's share of their patrimony count jamini since then however had inherited money and now they were well enough off as italians went though amy was horribly extravagant the count was a low-lived brute he had given his wife every pretext she had no children she had lost three within a year of their birth her mother who had bristled with pretensions to elegant learning and published descriptive poems and corresponded on italian subjects with the english weekly journals her mother had died three years after the countess's marriage the father lost in the grey american dawn of the situation but reputed originally rich and wild having died much earlier one could see this in gilbert osmond madame mel held see that he had been brought up by a woman though to do him justice one would suppose it had been by a more sensible woman than the american corinne as mrs osmond had liked to be called she had brought her children to italy after her husband's death and mrs touchett remembered her during the year that followed her arrival she thought her a horrible snob but this was an irregularity of judgment on mrs touchett's part for she like mrs osmond approved of political marriages the countess was very good company and not really the featherhead she seemed all one had to do with her was to observe the simple condition of not believing a word she said madame merle had always made the best of her for her brother's sake he appreciated any kindness shown to amy because if it had to be confessed for him he rather felt she let down their common name naturally he couldn't like her style her shrillness her egotism her violations of taste and above all of truth she acted badly on his nerves she was not his sort of woman what was his sort of woman oh the very opposite of the countess a woman to whom the truth should be habitually sacred isabel was unable to estimate the number of times her visitor had in half an hour profaned it the countess indeed had given her an impression of rather silly sincerity she had talked almost exclusively about herself how much she should like to know miss archer 
how thankful she should be for a real friend how base the people in florence were how tired she was of the place how much she would like to live somewhere else in paris in london in washington how impossible it was to get anything nice to wear in italy except a little old lace how dear the world was growing everywhere what a life of suffering and privation she had led madame mere listened with interest to isabel's account of this passage but she had not needed it to feel exempt from anxiety on the whole she was not afraid of the countess and she could afford to do what was altogether best not to appear so isabel had meanwhile another visitor whom it was not even behind her back so easy a matter to patronize henrietta stackpole who had left paris after mrs touchett's departure for san remo and had worked her way down as she said through the cities of north italy reached the banks of the arno about the middle of may madame merle surveyed her with a single glance took her in from head to foot and after a pang of despair determined to endure her she had determined indeed to delight in her she mightn't be inhaled as a rose but she might be grasped as a nettle madame merle genially squeezed her into insignificance and isabel felt that in foreseeing this liberality she had done justice to her friend's intelligence henrietta's arrival had been announced by mr bantling who coming down from nice while she was at venice and expecting to find her in florence which she had not yet reached called at the palazzo crescentini to express his disappointment henrietta's own advent occurred two days later and produced in mr bantling an emotion amply accounted for by the fact that he had not seen her since the termination of the episode at versailles the humorous view of his situation was generally taken but it was uttered only by ralph touchett who in the privacy of his own apartment when bantling smoked a cigar there indulged in goodness knew what strong comedy on the subject of the all-judging one and her british backer this gentleman took the joke in perfectly good part and candidly confessed that he regarded the affair as a positive intellectual adventure he liked miss stackpole extremely he thought she had a wonderful head on her shoulders and found great comfort in the society of a woman who was not perpetually thinking about what would be said and how what she did how what they did and they had done things would look miss stackpole never cared how anything looked and if she didn't care pray why should he but his curiosity had been roused he wanted awfully to see if she ever would care he was prepared to go as far as she he didn't see why he should break down first henrietta showed no signs of breaking down her prospects had brightened on her leaving england and she was now in the full enjoyment of her copious resources she had indeed been obliged to sacrifice her hopes with regard to the inner life the social question on the continent bristled with difficulties even more numerous than those she had encountered in england but on the continent there was the outer life which was palpable and visible at every turn and more easily convertible to literary uses than the customs of those opaque islanders out of doors in foreign lands as she ingeniously remarked one seemed to see the right side of the tapestry out of doors in england one seemed to see the wrong side which gave one no notion of the figure 
the admission cost her historian a pang but henrietta despairing of more occult things was now paying much attention to the outer life she had been studying it for two months at venice from which city she sent to the interviewer a conscientious account of the gondolas the piazza the bridge of size the pigeons and the young boatman who chanted tasso the interviewer was perhaps disappointed but henrietta was at least seeing europe her present purpose was to get down to rome before the malaria should come on she apparently supposed that it began on a fixed day and with this design she was to spend at present but few days in florence mr bantling was to go with her to rome and she pointed out to isabel that as he had been there before as he was a military man and as he had had a classical education he had been bred at eton where they studied nothing but latin and white melville said miss stackpole he would be a most useful companion in the city of the caesars at this juncture ralph had the happy idea of proposing to isabel that she also under his own escort should make a pilgrimage to rome she expected to pass a portion of the next winter there that was very well but meantime there was no harm in surveying the field there were ten days left of the beautiful month of may the most precious month of all to the true rome lover isabel would become a rome lover that was a foregone conclusion she was provided with a trusty companion of her own sex whose society thanks to the fact of other calls on this lady's attention would probably not be oppressive madame merle would remain with mrs touchett she had left rome for the summer and wouldn't care to return she professed herself delighted to be left at peace in florence she had locked up her apartment and sent her cook home to palestrina she urged isabel however to assent to ralph's proposal and assured her that a good introduction to rome was not a thing to be despised isabel in truth needed no urging and the party of four arranged this little journey mrs touchett on this occasion had resigned herself to the absence of a duenna we have seen that she now inclined to the belief that her niece should stand alone one of isabel's preparations consisted of her seeing gilbert osmond before she started and mentioning her intention to him i should like to be in rome with you he commented i should like to see you on that wonderful ground she scarcely faltered you might come then but you'll have a lot of people with you ah isabel admitted of course i shall not be alone for a moment he said nothing more you'll like it he went on at last they've spoiled it but you'll rave about it ought i to dislike it because poor old dear the niobe of nations you know it has been spoiled she asked no i think not it has been spoiled so often he smiled if i were to go what should i do with my little girl can't you leave her at the villa i don't know that i like that though there's a very good old woman who looks after her i can't afford a governess bring her with you then said isabel promptly mr osmond looked grave she has been in rome all winter at her convent and she's too young to make journeys of pleasure you don't like bringing her forward isabel inquired no i think young girls should be kept out of the world i was brought up on a different system you oh with you it succeeded because you you were exceptional 
"'I don't see why,' said Isabel, who, however, was not sure there was not some truth in the speech. Mr. Osmond didn't explain. He simply went on. "'If I thought it would make her resemble you to join a social group in Rome, I'd take her there to-morrow.' "'Don't make her resemble me,' said Isabel. "'Keep her like herself.' "'I might send her to my sister,' Mr. Osmond observed. He had almost the air of asking advice. He seemed to like to talk over his domestic matters with Miss Archer. "'Yes,' she concurred. "'I think that wouldn't do much towards making her resemble me.' After she had left Florence, Gilbert Osmond met Madame Merle at the Countess Gemini's. There were other people present. The Countess's drawing-room was usually well filled, and the talk had been general, but after a while Osmond left his place, and came and sat on an ottoman half behind, half beside Madame Merle's chair. "'She wants me to go to Rome with her,' he remarked in a low voice. "'To go with her?' "'To be there while she's there. She proposed it.' "'I suppose you mean that you proposed it and she assented?' Of course, I gave her a chance, but she's encouraging, she's very encouraging. I rejoice to hear it, but don't cry victory too soon. Of course you'll go to Rome. Ah, said Osmond, it makes one work, this idea of yours. Don't pretend you don't enjoy it, you're very ungrateful. You've not been so well occupied these many years. The way you take, it's beautiful, said Osmond. I ought to be grateful for that. Not too much so, however, Madame Merle answered. She talked with her usual smile, leaning back in her chair and looking around the room. You've made a very good impression, and I've seen for myself that you've received one. You've not come to Mrs. Touchett seven times to oblige me. The girl's not disagreeable, Osmond quietly conceded. Madame Merle dropped her eye on him a moment, during which her lips closed with a certain firmness. Is that all you can find to say about that fine creature? All? Isn't it enough? Of how many people have you heard me say more? She made no answer to this, but still presented her talkative grace to the room. You're unfathomable, she murmured at last. I'm frightened at the abyss into which I shall have to cast her. He took it almost gaily. You can't draw back. You've gone too far. Very good but you must do the rest yourself. I shall do it, said Gilbert Osmond. Madame Merle remained silent, and he changed his place again, but when she rose to go, he also took leave. Mrs. Touchett's Victoria was awaiting her guest in the court, and after he had helped his friend into it, he stood there detaining her. You're very indiscreet, she said rather wearily. You shouldn't have moved when I did. He had taken off his hat. He passed his hand over his forehead. I always forget. I'm out of the habit. You're quite unfathomable, she repeated, glancing up at the windows of the house, a modern structure in the new part of town. He paid no heed to this remark, but spoke in his own sense. She's really very charming. I've scarcely known anyone more graceful. It does me good to hear you say that. The better you like her, the better for me. I like her very much. She's all you described her, and into the bargain capable, I feel, of great devotion. She has only one fault. 
What's that? Too many ideas. I warned you she was clever. Fortunately, they're very bad ones, said Osmond. Why is that fortunate? Damn, if they must be sacrificed. Madame Mère leaned back, looking straight before her, then she spoke to the coachman. But her friend again detained her. If I go to Rome, what shall I do with Pansy? I'll go and see her, said Madame Mère. End of chapter 26